please pray aloud with me this prayer of illumination. God, our Father, by your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds to your word and lead us into your truth for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. A reading from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Everyone who was still standing until I said it, you win. Bonus points. Many of you were. Kids, it's so glad, I'm so glad to see you. Today is family worship uh, every fourth Sunday of the month. As Ben said, we are starting a six-week series on the cross of Christ. And uh, I think some of these uh, images that we will discuss from these various passages over these weeks will be new to you. Most of them will be a review. But my hope is, is for all of us, our understanding of what Jesus has done will expand. Not just our understanding uh, ending at a neater and tighter doctrinal toolbox, although that's not a bad thing, But even more than that, that it will move us to worship. It will move us to lean into Jesus in a way that we haven't before. And in fact, that we would understand our mission of making whole life disciples. We would understand it, that central to that is the cross of Christ and all of its implications. And so today, uh, we will talk about what Jesus accomplished on the cross, particularly as it relates to restoring broken relationships. And all of us have experienced, the, have experienced the pain of a loss of relationship. We've experienced the pain when there's, there's a breach in some relationship. It can span all the way from simple annoyances of life, like when someone forgets an appointment and we're stranded there for a couple of hours, right? Something small like that, at least relatively small. Some of you, I know that's your pet peeve, uh, but I just want to tell you, it's not that big of a deal, all right? <laughs> I don't try to do it. It happens sometimes, but I suppose I have my own pet peeves. But nevertheless, there are small nuisances of life that, in fact, require circling back with someone, circling back with them relationally. Maybe it's we, we didn't get back to them for a month when they sent us an email. I mean, these things exist, and if there's a relational connection, there is now some rupture or breach. But of course, The pain of relational separation that we see the effects all around us can move all the way to the other side where we hear of stories, and I know some of your stories, is heartbreaking, 
where there are lifelong breaches of trust. There are, there's long-lasting cruelty or disloyalty or infidelity. Right? We all have our stories. Many of them are heart-wrenching. And in our stories, we have relationships that have been ruptured and ruined. Some of these are reconciled and some are not. But reconciliation, both vertically and horizontally, that is to say between us and God and between us and our neighbors, this story, this message of reconciliation is central to the theme of the Bible from the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament. And as you read the Bible, you'll see that reconciliation actually moves at different levels. There, there's individual reconciliation. There's corporate reconciliation between people groups or churches. And there's also cosmic reconciliation. If you read Colossians 1, you'll see that Jesus is reconciling or has reconciled all things by the blood of his cross, whether above the earth, below the earth, on the earth. Jesus is reconciling all things. But this morning... For, for time and for focus, we're going to be looking mainly at the cross of Christ as it relates to reconciliation between God, us and God, and between us and others. Now, I chose to keep verses 16 and 17 in the scripture reading because I wanted to point out that in 2 Corinthians 5, there are three core doctrines. At the beginning, in verse 17, you see the doctrine of regeneration. And we've been talking about this in various ways. I haven't used that word, but in the vision series, we talked about whole life discipleship being an invasive work that requires new creation. If you're going to follow Jesus, the only reason you would want to and the only place you'll get the power is if God actually makes your heart new, where he makes you want to follow him. That's in verse 17. We call that regeneration. Then in verse 21, we see the doctrine of justification. Now, we're going to talk about that in this series, but I want to point out that's the doctrine that most of you probably are most familiar with. Justification. Regeneration could be new to you by the word. But in the middle In verses 18 and 19, we have reconciliation. I think it's a doctrine that doesn't get talked about very often in our circles. It's a powerful doctrine. It's a doctrine that as I reflected on how the cross brings about reconciliation, I was moved in multiple ways. So much so that last night I sat my kids down and uh, I said, hey, I want to tell you something that I'm going to say tomorrow and I'm going to prepare you. And then when I say it tomorrow, I'm going to talk to you about it afterwards. And most of you may think, well, you're the preacher. Don't you do that every week? And the answer is, I wish. (laughs) Uh, No, but this week I did. So the way we're going to do this is we're going to do this by moving through four steps. And I'm trying to take us through a progression in this passage. Uh, But the first step is I want to ask, what is the realm of reconciliation? In other words, if we're looking at the cross from six different angles or six different pictures, what sphere of life does this picture come from of reconciliation? And it comes from the realm of relationships, right? I already hinted at that when I talked about the pain of having a falling out, even in horizontal relationships. But when we talk about reconciliation, it is a picture of Christ bringing us back into relationship personally with God the Father. And we see this in different places in Paul's writings. By the way, Paul's the only one who uses the word reconciliation. He uses it all over the place. One of those places was in our call to worship in Romans 5, right? We saw there that we need to be reconciled because we are God's enemies. Paul says we were enemies of God and therefore we need to be reconciled. He also says in Colossians 1.21 that we were alienated and hostile 
in mind. And then if you look at our passage today, particularly verses 18 and 19, let's jump in at uh, 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Verse 19, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. So clearly, there's a breach. There's a chasm. Otherwise, you don't have to be reconciled to someone. So implied then is this communication of our need for reconciliation, that we are or were, apart from Christ, estranged from God. We all know that feeling of being distant from someone emotionally and relationally, right? It doesn't matter your age. You understand it's that feeling of shame or, or uneasiness. Even kids, you know this. When you disobey your parents, sometimes it's hard to look at them, isn't it? It's hard to look at them in the eye. And that feeling that you feel is called estrangement. I know it's a big word, but what it means is that that feeling of distance that you have, you want to be close. You want to feel close. And God was distant from us because we sin. But in Christ, he moved toward us so that we don't have to have that feeling of being far away from God anymore. So the idea of reconciliation is a restoration in this realm of relationships. And so when we think about that, we will understand that what Jesus accomplished on the cross is relational. Now we're going to talk about the legal realities, the representative realities, the sacrificial realities, but we can't miss this relational achievement. Maybe one of the most existential of these pictures for me is this of reconciliation, of once being far off and now being brought near by the blood of Christ, once being at enmity and now being embraced by the Father. And that takes us to this next step. What is the result of reconciliation? If we're in the realm of relationships, what is the result? Well, the result is we've gone, as Graham Cole, a theologian said, from enmity to being embraced. We've gone from being an adversary to being at peace. I already mentioned this, but Colossians 1.20 says, Jesus made peace by the blood of his his cross. And when we understand what Jesus did, Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, actually, in the same way as in our passage, he says that Jesus became sin, meaning that his relation to God was as if he were sin. Well, Jesus, in Ephesians 2, Paul says, is our peace. And so you see, any relationship we have in moving toward God has to be in Christ, both in his taking our sin, which we'll get to more, and in us experiencing peace. Both of those things happen in union with Christ. So to say it again, by the sacrifice of Christ, a relation of reconciliation, of peace, of nearness, these all have been established between God and humanity. And this is why. In Christ, God has put aside his enmity because Christ took on our sin. And now that our sin has been removed, God is in a relation of friendship and peace toward us. Think about that. How do you think about God's disposition toward you? 
Is it one of frustration? Is it one of him holding out? Is it one of him tapping his toe constantly? Saying, when, when, is, when is he going to get his act together? When is she going to get her act together? But if what Paul is saying here is that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, and we're going to get to this in a second, not counting their transgressions or trespasses against them. That's a big deal. That's a really big deal. This means that if you're in Christ, God is not mad at you, and he will never be mad at you. God is not mad at you. He will never be mad at you. All of his frustration and wrath and anger was put on Jesus. He put it aside on Jesus, away from you. And God does not ever in any way punish you, ever. Now, of course, he disciplines you, but that's only because he loves you and it's for your good and it's for your protection and it's for your growth and godliness. Parents, right? Because we so often discipline our children out of anger, we confuse ourselves of how God views us and we confuse our children. Because we so regularly mingle our anger with discipline, it becomes about us venting. It becomes about us punishing Instead of correcting out of love, instead of thinking, how does God view me? Now, my main job and discipline first is to deal with my own issues. Then I now can move forward and display to my child what God feels towards them in Christ, what God feels toward me in Christ. That is challenging dare I say, impossible, apart from the love of Christ. If you and I believe that Jesus did not remove the wrath of God, we will believe that God is mad at us. If we believe that God is mad at us, then we will never be able to separate discipline from punishment, God's view toward us or our view toward our children. But when God disciplines us, it's always for our good. He's not angry with us. And so as we become more and more aware of God's disposition toward us, it affects every area of our life. And while, of course, there's a daily need for repentance and faith in our walk with God, his his disposition toward us is now in Christ, always one of peace and of nearness. That's the doctrine of reconciliation. That's what the cross has accomplished. And if there's a part of you that, that, that feels, how is that possible? Then welcome to the party. Because the gospel, the good news of Jesus is absolutely scandalous. So much so that Paul frequently, apparently, at least in the church in Rome and other places, was, was, uh, was accused of saying that God doesn't have a law, that God doesn't have standards. But in fact, He has higher standards than any of us could possibly imagine. He is more pure and more good and therefore hates sin and injustice more than you and I could possibly imagine. So how is it possible that God could be at peace with us? Well, we move to our next point. If if the realm of reconciliation is one of relationships and the result of reconciliation is one that moved us from enmity to embrace, one from enemy to friend, one from far off to close, then the requirement of reconciliation matters. We need to understand what was required in order for this to be possible. And Paul tells us in the passage, 
Verse 19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world, and by this, in this instance, he means sinners, sinful humanity. He was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. I want to go back to the call to worship. I'm going to read, if you have your Bible, you can flip backwards to Romans 5. But I'm going to read again from Romans 5, 10, and 11. For, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now receive reconciliation. Don't miss this. Verse 10. We were enemies who have been reconciled. How? By the death of his son. And then in our passage, of course, we understand in verse 21 that Jesus was made to be sin. Where? On the cross. That's why God turned his eyes away from Jesus. Because he received the curse of sin. And now God can forgive us And forgiveness is most basically not counting someone's trespasses against them any longer. Like that's as close as the New Testament can get to defining forgiveness, many will say, is right here. That God no longer counts our sin toward us. Reconciliation and forgiveness of sins must go together. God cannot be reconciled to us without the forgiveness of sins. And we know this. Forgiveness is a necessary link in any reconciliation, right? Because without, reconcili- without forgiveness, reconciliation will never happen. It doesn't matter if it's between uh, a parent and a child, a wife and a husband, a brother and a sister, or anyone else. Without forgiveness, we are locked into an endless war. And as one person put it, when we're in this endless war, each party will always require the last word, the last bullet, or the last bomb. Without forgiveness, reconciliation is absolutely impossible. And this idea of counting something against or not counting something against comes from the world of accounting. Right? When we tend to think of it in a pejorative sense, when we say, I'm going to count that against them. I'm going to count that against that person. But in this case, it's a positive thing that God would choose not to debit our account with our transgressions. In other words, when you and I log on to our bank account, we use a credit card or a debit, of course, we see a log of all the transactions. Well, if you and I, every sin of ours was logged, we could easily log on and see all of those transactions. It would be counted towards our account, debited. Well, if God in Jesus Christ is not counting their trespasses against them, it means that when you log on to your bank account, so to speak, there are no debits, only credits. Because Jesus took all of your debits and God now continues to take all of your debits and puts them on Jesus's account. That's what this language means when it says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. But here's the problem. If if we move too quickly, we can miss the breathtaking reality of what verse 19 actually says. These six staggering words, not counting their trespasses against them. These six staggering words. C.S. Lewis 
is helpful here when he says this. Real forgiveness means looking steadily at the sin. The sin that is left over without any excuse. After all allowances have been made and seeing it in all its horror, dirt, meanness, and malice. And nevertheless being wholly reconciled to the person who has done it. That and only that is forgiveness. And that we can always have from God if we ask for it. See, asking for forgiveness means confessing that you sinned. It doesn't matter if it's to God or to one another. If there's to be reconciliation, the offended party will have to decide not to hold it against you. And in Jesus Christ, God has decided not to hold your sin against you if you trust in him. One author put it this way, when we understand sin, we know we are without excuse before God. But in the gospel, being inexcusable does not mean being unforgivable. You have no excuse. But, the, you know, one thing, I do this too, we, we all do this. We come to a place in confession or we come to a place in relationships where we so soften our sin against someone else or against God. And we have lots of ways to do it. I came up with four. Here, here they are. The first one, when we come to confess our sin, the way we soften it, we enter into confession mainly for catharsis. And what I mean by that is we know if we put ourselves through this painful experience that we'll be relieved of guilt, if we can just be really clear with the person we sinned against, whether it's our, our husband, our wife, our children, whoever it's challenging for you, a coworker. I hope you do ask forgiveness from your coworkers, by the way. In every membership interview, I ask whoever's interviewing, when's the last time you asked forgiveness from someone who's not a family member? I ask that in every one. Heads up, this is prep, preparation. Oh, don't worry, I, I tell you. I tell you the last time I did. It's a conversation. But oftentimes we do it out of catharsis, right? It, it makes us feel better. But the aim of our confession is not reconciliation. It's to get it off our chest only. And if it stops at that, that's not what we're talking about. That's not true confession. Another way we do it is, is that we, we confess in such a way where our pride can still be preserved. And we usually do this by being lighthearted about it. We kind of laugh or we smile or we make a joke, right? Do you do this? We, we make jokes to soften the severity. Listen, when you joke in those moments, it's not a sign of emotional or spiritual maturity. Or when someone asks you for forgiveness and you joke like it's not that big of a deal or you laugh it off or you say it's not that big of a deal, that is not a sign of emotional or spiritual maturity. It's a sign of immaturity. It's a sign where you're willing to soften either so that you don't have to feel the tension of forgiving someone when they come to you and say, please forgive me, or when you're trying to preserve, save face. Okay, that's not the type of confession we're talking about that brings about forgiveness. That's not the kind of confession as C.S. Lewis reminded us that looks directly at the sin and all of its meanness and nastiness and still offers forgiveness. Uh, Another way we do it is uh, some of us apologize quickly in order to put on a show of sensitivity of conscience, right? In order to impress the other person, we're always quick to ask forgiveness. One, it could be to, to get rid of the 
the tension in the room. Another way it could be, we could do that in order to put everyone in a relation to ourself to where if they held us accountable, they would seem like a jerk. Because we're always so soft in conscience. At least we put that perception on. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> At least I know what I'm talking about. Right? This might look like you're finding something that's true. But really, you're, you're seeking for anything you can confess in order to entering into a challenging situation where you all of a sudden now, even though you're the one who transgressed, have the upper hand. That's not real confession. But there is a way that we can cultivate a soft conscience as long as the goal is toward reconciliation and not power. As long as the goal is towards being one in relationship and not being perceived as someone who's mature and kind and tender. You know the difference. And the last one for this morning. Some of us confess our sins not for reconciliation, but out of a veiled attack, mainly when we use the word if. Hey, I'm sorry if I hurt you. More cynically, what we're really meaning is, I'm so sorry that your feelings are so sensitive that you seem to have been hurt by what I did because I did nothing that would harm a normal, mature, or adequate human being. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. Please no elbows, spouses. (laughs) Even that too can be forgiven. The point is that there's an integral connection between forgiveness, true forgiveness, confession, and reconciliation. When there's a breach of relationship because of sin or transgression, there must be confession, true confession, by the one who transgressed. And then there has to be a choice of forgiveness by the one who was sinned against. And that always costs. There's always something that has to be absorbed. It's always a choice. Don't ever take it lightly. In fact, it might be a sign of maturity, if you come to someone, ask for their forgiveness, and they tell you, I need to get back to you. That actually might be a sign of maturity on their part because they might understand the severity of sin and transgression and forgiveness and what it means to say, I forgive you. It means, to the best of my ability, I will never bring this up again. And I will, going back to the passage, not count this against you. So confession and forgiveness are always, they must always be toward the goal of reconciliation, toward the goal of relationship, right? Even God's choice to be reconciled to us by forgiving our sins in Christ was for reconciliation. That's what he says right here. We tend to talk about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, which is absolutely true, but why did he do that? It's so we could be restored in relationship to God to be reconciled because God wants to move towards us. He wants to embrace us in Christ. And so the realm of reconciliation, when we think about the cross from this angle, is relationship. And the result of reconciliation in Christ is that God now embraces us fully and he's not mad at us anymore in Christ. But we understand the requirement of reconciliation is forgiveness, which only comes about through confession, honest, true, looking at the sin, confession. And lastly, the responsibility then of the reconciled. So Paul is assuming that all who have experienced being reconciled to God in Jesus Christ will read what I'm about to read, will hear what I'm about to hear, 
and feel privileged, not burdened. And that's this. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. And then he says, so we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so in verse 19, through the rest, Paul tells us that those who have been reconciled have now been entrusted with this message of reconciliation. Right? So by the very content of how Paul summarizes the message, we learn a lot again about reconciliation and about its importance. What is the message that we've been entrusted with? Be reconciled to God. That's how Paul summarizes the gospel. Be reconciled to God. You see, that's to say, not just that God must be reconciled to us, but we have to be reconciled to him. You see, in Christ, God did put aside his enmity towards human beings. He did. He put it aside. That's what it says. But we often think that it's God, the one, God is the one who's holding out. We often think that it's only God who has enmity toward us. But the scriptures are very clear. We too have enmity toward God. And you might think, not me. I don't. Yes, you do. Give me three minutes with you. And I will show you first by telling you how I have enmity with him. And I think after I start telling you how I still am tempted towards living my life as though God were not for my good, as though God was still holding out on me. If I start confessing some of these things to you, I think you would quickly realize why. Maybe I do doubt God. Maybe I do question his goodness toward me. And if you're in Christ, that's after you have a new heart. We still struggle in the flesh with this. Imagine before, that's why the Bible calls us Enemies before we come to Christ. That's why we once were members of the kingdom of darkness and we must be transferred into this kingdom of his beloved son, this kingdom of light. And so, if humanity still has enmity towards God, that's why the gospel message is be reconciled to God. God in Christ has put aside his wrath. He longs for you to come and know him and receive abundant life. But in order to do that, you must trust Jesus with your life. You must give him your life. And in order to give him your life, you have to put aside your enmity toward God. I've heard it put this way before. Repentance is kind of like this. There was a man who told a story about how he would take his trash out to the garbage, but it was through this small hallway between the closet and the back, I mean, between the kitchen and the back door. And so in order to do it, he'd have to turn this way with the bags. He couldn't walk straight because there wasn't enough room. So he'd have to turn this way. And one time as he was in a conversation with his wife, he was leaving the kitchen and she wanted, she said, hey, give, give me a kiss. And as he was going out, he sort of reached over like this. And she said, put the garbage down, turn around and give me a kiss. That is what repentance and faith looks like. For so many of us, we've lived our life like this, and and we feel, hey, Jesus loves you. Put your trust in him. He wants you. It's like, well, I'll just do one of these things right here. No, put it down. Put Put the garbage down. That's your enmity. You love things more than him, which is the problem. And so I want to end with 
this, almost end with this quote by Herman Bovink. Reconciliation is the content of the gospel. Everything is done. God is reconciled. On our part, there is nothing left to do. And the entire ministry of reconciliation consists in an invitation to people to be reconciled to God. To say, on your part too, put aside your enmity. Enter into the relation of peace in which God, in response to Christ's sacrifice, has put himself towards sinners. Believe the gospel. People do not reconcile themselves with God as though somehow along, side by side with God, they were the subject of reconciliation. But God reconciled the world with himself without its assistance, apart from any help, without the world contributing anything to reconciliation or needing to contribute to it. People only receive reconciliation as a gift and accept it by faith. And I'm telling you, the way that you, for the first time and daily, receive this gift by faith is to put the garbage down and turn around and be embraced. So to be an ambassador, then, is to both proclaim and to live this message of reconciliation. So this week, I would want you, as you reflect on this amazing reality that God in Christ has reconciled himself to us, And by our faith in Christ, we receive all the benefits of Jesus. That we now have peace with God and a growing peace within ourselves. I hope, my prayer, is that it would lead us to live lives of peacemaking. This is why Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, which we saw last year, blessed are the peacemakers. You see, the ones who have received peace will pursue peace in all relationships because we've experienced peace at a level that no one else can imagine who hasn't received peace. And you see, those are the best ambassadors, aren't they? Those are the best ambassadors, the ones who have experienced peace, who have experienced reconciliation, who are experiencing freedom. It's very hard for me, very hard for me or anyone, to invite someone to a place where either A, you haven't been, or B, you aren't willing to go to with them. So often, we are more like travel agents in proclaiming the gospel as opposed to tour guides. In other words, we just want to sit here and say, yeah, you want forgiveness? Yeah, you can do that. You can go over there, experience that, but I'm not going to go with you. I I won't put my garbage down. I've never done that. But we need to be tour guides that say, come with us. It's going to be dirty. It's going to be confusing. It's going to be messy. But God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself. I've put aside my enmity toward God, and he's restoring me now to bring me more in line with the reality that has already happened. And that's going to have implications on your whole life. That's going to be invasive. But it's going to be freeing and it's going to be good. Let's pray. Father, uh, I am honestly myself um, a little nervous, even by my own words. Um, following you uh, isn't comfortable, but it's good. And it's the only place we'll find life. And there are no doubt uh, relationships that some people in here are not reconciled to. And uh, we want to heed the words of Paul in Romans 12, where he says, as far as possible, be at peace with everyone. And so be gentle but precise in the hearts of those who 
need to reconcile with others. Be gentle and precise in your goodness of calling us now, some for the first time, to put the garbage down and turn and be embraced by you. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.